Hey everyone, Aiden here. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. I'm joined today by two former soldiers who've covered a great breadth of material in terms of format and critical thinking about our modern wars and their work. In this discussion, we cover how popular culture remembers wars, the role that humor can play in interactions between civilians and service members, and some broader discussions on writing in the military. A quick note before I introduce our guests. I did have audio issues with this episode, so you'll notice I'm visibly lacking from the discussion in the middle to end of the recording, Uh, but arguably this might only suit to improve your listening experience, Uh, but I'll leave that to you. Randy Brown embedded with his former Iowa Army National Guard unit as a civilian journalist in Afghanistan from May to June 2011. In 2015, he authored the poetry collection Welcome to Fob Haiku, War Poems from Inside the Wire, published by Middle West Press. His often humorous work has appeared widely in literary print and online publications. He writes as Charlie Sherpa on his blog about military culture, Red Bull Rising. Barry Alexander is a veteran of 20 years service in the British Army who's deployed to the Balkans, Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone, Iraq, and Afghanistan, first as an enlisted soldier and then as an officer before retiring as a major in 2014. Barry's recent memoirs titled On Afghanistan's Plains blended the style with his earlier poetry, which is how he first came on my radar. Before we get into this discussion, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the Strategy Bridge, our sponsor for today's show. The Strategy Bridge is an online journal focused on policy, strategy, national security, and military affairs. They have a diverse community of readers and writers who are based everywhere from the US and UK to New Zealand and Asia. Their work has found its way onto the reading list of the US Air Force Chief of Staff and the UK Army's professional reading list. Uh, So they're clearly doing something right. Over at the bridge, they publish critical content for military defense and IR practitioners, as well as timely book reviews from the national security space. You can find the bridge at www.thestrategybridge.com. Check them out and become a member of the bridge community by clicking on join us and subscribing to their feed. Now back to the show. I'll start with you, Randy. Uh, I think you're kind of one of the people who has uh, critically viewed our modern wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, though not exclusively those, through a much wider lens in terms of mediums than I think most of us. Uh, You know, I go on your site, Red Bull Rising on any one day, and I can find... um, Discussions of creative fiction and nonfiction narratives, poetry, graphic novels, as well as the occasional uh, analytical or policy piece. Um, When you're taking on these various kind of pieces of how we talk about and remember wars, do they all fit into a single picture for you in the sense that there's a a unified narrative we're pushing there? Or are they different enough that we have to kind of view them through their own individual lenses and then, um, you know, possibly not, you know, take them for what they are as individual sorts of mediums rather than one kind of unified thing? Well, for, for me, you know, it's, I, I, start, I start out as a journalist. Um, I, you know, I, tra- I trained to be a journalist. Uh, I went to school to be a journalist. Uh, 
you know, I, I majored in newspaper uh, uh, journalism back in the mid 1980s, and and I knew I was a dinosaur even then. I just never expected to live long enough to see the asteroid hit. Uh, so you know, I, I come from I, I come from that background, and come from then a decidedly uh, practical uh, first draft of history, nonfiction kind of background. So I'm kind of a reluctant. A poet. I often joke that uh, I finally discovered a vocation that pays less than newspaper journalism, and that's military poet. <laughs> um, but that kind of uh, perspective has also uh, given me the ability to look at these other various forms of communication as, you know, these are all variations of storytelling. And uh, back in uh, English class, because uh, journalism majors were not allowed to clep out of English class, uh, I remember, you know, professors saying there are only really uh, two stories in the world or in literature, and those are, you know, a hero goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town. And for me, the story of uh, a deployment, if you're talking about an individual soldier or if you're talking about a unit or if you're talking about on a national scale, a war, uh, those two uh, dynamics really, you know, really come into play. Uh, every war is a has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, every deployment has a beginning, middle, and an end. That's you know the the basic definition of a of a story. So if you're talking about uh, telling a story in nonfiction, that's great. But I also think that there are ways to inform uh, our our understanding of why we go to war, how we go to war, what the effects are on different audiences and populations. Uh, are when we do engage in war. Uh, I, I think that they, things like poetry, comic books, movies, uh, are just as valid and just as dynamic in informing and uh, complicating our understanding of of, uh, of war. Absolutely. And, and Barry, I guess you come from kind of in a, in a certain way, the exact opposite approach, wherein uh, poetry was one of the, the first kind of mediums that you took on in terms of considering war and have later turned to uh, your memoir on Afghanistan's plane. So do you come at that? Uh, do you come at, come at it with the same end state wherein it's just a, it's a way of telling stories or do you look at it in a different way as uh, Randy? Um, well, I come from a, almost, as you say, a diametrically opposed standpoint from Randy in that I am the professional soldier uh, that's turned amateur writer rather than the professional writer that's turned, I won't say amateur soldier, but citizen soldier in Randy's case. Um, <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> um, so for me, the, the poetry, I was always a poet. I used to dabble with poetry as a youngster. I put my pen down. Uh, I then picked it up again uh, after serving in Afghanistan. And, um, and for me, poetry was, was a means of, of healing, kind of mentally processing uh, my experience. Uh, and almost by accident, the, the poetry became a means of, of putting together a, a memoir, um, which is the, the book that's now out. Um, for me, it was, it was very personal, and it's about... Um, my journey, um, tying in with uh, with Randy's uh, take on the, the, that there are only two stories. Um, so for me, it's very personal, but I think 
any way that that narrative or that group of narratives can get out there and be seen, be read, be listened to, be maintained for posterity, for understanding of future generations, I think is absolutely highly important. And I don't think the um, even the, the means of doing that, whether it's through sort of highbrow uh, academic writing or through something a little bit less highbrow like my own, and then also popular culture, I, th I think they're all equally valid. Yeah, and I, I think what what really brings me to poetry is, you know, in, in Barry's case, the reason I'm attracted to Barry's work is, you know, I, there could be no possible way that I would ever know what it was like to be a medical officer in an allied army. But I can read his work, both poetic and, and memoir, and understand his perspective and his experience, which is is related but foreign to mine. And that's what that's what, you know, any medium probably strives for is to communicate that uh, that different perspective, to allow us to kind of inhabit the other person's perspective a, a little bit in you know I'm, I'm a journalist I like short things I like short reads I like quick hits so poetry for me you know is, is another way that I can quickly uh, get into something you know maybe I understand it right away maybe I don't maybe I reflect upon it maybe you know and it, it gives me a hook into somebody else's experience in, in a very short period of time and I think that's that's probably uh, the way it is for you know, uh, other consumers of poetry, and yes, there are you know consumers of poetry out there. Uh, you know, we we can we can find poets who are you know ball turret gunners in uh, World War II. We can find poets who are MPs in Vietnam. We can read. Uh, there's a project called the Afghan Women's Writing Project that uh, you know certainly gives voice to a population that we don't typically hear from in mainstream media. You know, I the people were trying to help in Afghanistan. You know, all of those things. And and I'll uh, I'll bring up although uh, I noticed that both of you have at various points in blog posts and things like that uh, brought up those um, a dis a discussion about in popular literature, not even necessarily literature, but just our popular culture, there is a certain narrative that we hear about when we're talking about the military in conflict, much more so than uh, most others, uh, like both of your own works. And it's that, it is that typically a, a soft, you know, uh, you know, kinetic operator, um, you know, sometimes acting as a lone, not, not necessarily a lone wolf in the sense of uh, actually operating as an individual, but, you know, small units, uh, but it's really their own, per, you know, their own individual actions in a certain type of setting. And I wanted to get both of your perspectives. I'll start with you, Randy. Um, where do you, th what sort of effect do you think that has and where do we need to look uh in, uh, for other perspectives on uh, military and conflict, and, and that's that's a, a great great point. I, I hadn't even thought about bringing it into you know a, a lot of the literary criticism on popular bestsellers is that the kill memoir, I believe, is the term. Uh, you know the the snipers, the uh, special forces uh, down behind enemy lines. Those types of narratives often capture the the public's imagination, both in 
uh, best-selling books that you can buy at Sam's Club or Costco or Barnes and Noble or uh, you know view on the uh, on the screen. I think as we digest as a culture more of the literary uh, content that's out there, I think you'll. Uh, uh, you'll begin to see that kind of infiltrate into the uh, percolate into the the, the, me- the mass media culture as well. But uh, but yes, uh, certainly narratives like uh, you know the, the warrior narrative uh, are the easiest to find and probably the loudest uh, in the media battlefield. If I want to overuse that metaphor, uh, that's why you know I think uh, Barry's narratives. Uh, the narratives that I encounter as the uh, poetry editor at uh, Military Experience in the Arts uh, Journal, as you were, uh, are so vitally important because they're male, they're female, they're, they're soldiers, they're airmen, they're Marines. They're coming from different places uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, you know, the, the, the military is a, is a big melting pot and there are certainly more voices, even if you limit it only to people who are in uniform, there are certainly more voices out there that need to be heard and appreciated and archived. What do you think, Barry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, as I said before, mine is a very personal, uh, piece because it's a a memoir. Um, but not only do I relate my story, I relate the story, or I, my story interweaves with those of the people that I was working in support of, um, our great infantry soldiers. Um, I also spend some time back in Camp Bastion, so it, it relates the sort of story of the of the of the guy working in the rear area, the fobbit, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's um, there are. A huge, there's a huge diversity of stories that are out there that absolutely need to be told because they're all part and parcel. They're all part of the entire package. Um, and that goes through to the, the partners wait, waiting at home for news, the kids, um, the, ho- the whole kit and caboodle, essentially. Yeah, and, and Barry brings up a great point, Aiden. Uh, the, the, the privileged observer or the, the, the privileged perspective of a, an observer who was able to go to various points on the battlefield, Barry's experience was certainly wider than uh, a, a, an infantry soldier or a cavalry soldier who got to really get in and uh, see the same sites over and over again you know, on, on patrol. You know, it's a different experience. Both of those experiences are, are quite valid, and, and they expand, again, our understanding of you know, the war in Afghanistan or the, the war elsewhere. Do you think there is some... Inherent quality to our our current conflicts because when you when and granted we have the benefit of looking back now um, a number of decades to you know I think the Vietnam War is probably the, the the most recent conflict where we've seen the full kind of breadth of works um, but do you think there's some inherent quality to either our current wars or the current culture that has kind of uh, brought about some of these uh, narratives that we see much more frequently. These these kill kill memoirs. Do you think there's? Do you think it's just a matter of time uh, before we see the diversity and some of the uh, a greater breadth of those 
personal works or things like that? Is it just a matter of time or is there some quality that's changed uh, in our culture and the conflicts that has kind of pushed those, uh, well, it, well, it's not stopped them from being creative or uh, created. Uh, and, you know, we hope that they get more, uh, more, you know, in the public limelight. But do you think there is some something that has pushed them to the side to a greater extent in these current conflicts? I don't know, Barry, you want to take that one first? Yeah, well, I, there are, I think one of the things that's not necessarily diluted uh, the quality, but it's, it's broadened the, uh, the entry gate for, for literature, for, um, for all medias, is, is the, the information age. Um, the fact that you've only got to look on YouTube at the, the range of videos that have been put together by the soldiers themselves, ranging from quite serious work to sort of the, the hey, look, this is what we did, through to um, some really quite amusing parodies of, of contemporary <laughs> songs. Um, um, one which I was looking at the other day was uh, I'm Squaddy and I Know It, which was particularly uh, amusing. Um, so there is... There is a, a huge swathe of, of stuff that's out there, um, and I think there's a danger that um, and it, some are, some are potentially. I wouldn't say that they have even the humorous stuff has less validity than than, than the more serious stuff. Because thinking back to the to the Great War, we always had trench comics, the, the Wipers Times. There were always parody publications. This is. This is the soldier's story being told through different media. Um, but I think the great thing is that there is now there are now more people doing it because more people have access to it. And, of course, the public have more accessibility to it thanks to YouTube. And, of course, in, in my case, thanks to Amazon. So, um, yeah. Well, and, and I don't have to tell you gentlemen, uh, you know, writing is hard and writing takes time. And, you know, coming up with a literary response, digesting an experience, you know, my, 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 my second and a half uh, point on a hero goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town is, you know, the stranger comes back and tries to figure out what that, what all that meant. And it, it takes a little while for uh, veterans particularly to, to come back and, and digest their experiences and try to figure out uh, at a personal level what it might have meant. And it takes us collectively as a culture even longer to kind of try to figure out what everything meant and to generate those, uh, those gems of literature and cinema and, and, and poets and, po and poems rather. Uh, you know, so that, that whole process, you know, takes a little bit of time. I, I kind of think Aiden to use your Vietnam uh, example you know, much of the Vietnam War culturally was fought in the, uh, say, the 1980s when uh, Rambo and uh, Platoon and, and those types of narratives were coming into play. I think in, the, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we're beginning to see uh, some titles uh, really begin to come to public consciousness. Uh, what is it? Uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is coming up as a... Uh, as a movie, that was certainly a a keystone uh, novel uh, that was written, and I believe by even by a non-veteran. So you know, somebody who is uh, coming to it as a uh, as a citizen of the, the country or the world, you know, their their perspective and their ability to communicate uh, in a literary form is just as valid as 
as anybody else's. So I, I think it, t- it takes takes time. I, I think we're almost on the cusp of another wave of stuff. I think in, a, in another conversation offline, I think Barry had a great point that, you know, we think of war poetry and we think of uh, the, the poets from the Great War and, you know, bo- battles over their poetry are, are still taking place. Uh, I, I, I throw it to throw it to Barry, but didn't you say that there was like a, a reaction against the, uh, the great war poets, uh, maybe in the sixties or seventies? Yeah. Well, the, um, the, uh, obviously, uh, I think the, the concern that I have, uh, and a concern a few people have is that the, the, the medium through which the first world war is now, now remembered for a great deal of, of kids and the way that they're taught about it is through the English curriculum and not the history curriculum. So, um, and that has the potential to skew the narrative slightly, um, because the war poets, great as they were, that were a small collection, um, and I, I'm hesitant to sort of group them by social class and, and, and rank, but they were predominantly uh, commissioned officers and generally from a more privileged class, although there were, ex- there were exceptions to, uh, to, that, um, to that cliche, I suppose. Um, but obviously the poetry of, of, of the Great War and then the sort of the, the narrative that emerged in the 1960s, um, the Oh, What a Lovely War, um, the, 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 the musical film uh, directed by Richard Attenborough and the whole uh, lines led by Donkey's uh, construct, um, that, has, that has taken a deep hold in the cultural psyche um, and it's, st- it's still widely held today by an enormous amount of people. However, there's now a counter-argument to that that's been, that's been put forward by people such as uh, Professor Gary Sheffield, um, who, who says, well, it wasn't that way. And, and there's the argument that I've seen put forward by the late, great Professor Richard Holmes, that the, um, that the, uh, the British Army of 1918 was probably and arguably the most professionally competent and battle-hardened that, that our nation has, has ever fielded. So the, um, all of this flies in the face, the whole story of like the incompetence of people such as Haig, um, how much of that was constructed by uh, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, who there was a deep-held animosity, and the fact that the, um, the British High Command was quite factionalised. Um, there were... There, there was there was definitely an in gang and definitely a, an out gang and um, and uh, it was uh, so the, the, that that one narrative of uh, incompetence lines led by donkeys um, is very deeply held but not necessarily true. I, I'm I'm laughing because I, your your mention of the in gang and the out gang immediately made me think of you know what the the ivory tower uh, of uh, poetry's uh, reaction was to the, the war poets back in the, you know, the thirties and the forties that they were, you know, left out of anthologies and all that. So, you know, I, I guess for me, Aiden, it, it's, uh, you know, the battle for narrative is ongoing and it's never frozen. You know, we're, we're still fighting the great war and our interpretations of it. We're still fighting Vietnam and our interpretations of it. You know, and the, that, that conversation continues through literature and culture uh, but you know that that goes back to you've heard me say it before. You know, all war is a battle for narrative, and that that war never ends. I guess uh, I've come to the conclusion with you know from hearing points like uh, like Barry's. 
I guess I guess my question in light of that would be and I and I think it was the New York Times, although unfortunately I'm blanking on both the author and their specific argument. Uh, so I'll have to include that in show notes instead, uh, essentially talking about how this culture of, en- you know, endless war, perpetual war, whatever you want to call it, where there is a. Uh, you know, a continuous low-grade conflict that exists now where uh, wherein our, our latest generation that I'm blanking on the name of uh, has essentially been born into and is now growing up and, you know, they're now, what, you know, 16, you know, they're now driving, things like that. Uh, and they have only known that low-grade conflict. And I guess in this, in this uh, new generation that has grown up, if you guys could postulate how does that affect you, you know your consideration that war never ends and the battle for narrative is ongoing when really war really this this war uh, in some ways is really at least up until this point never ending I think war has never ended um, in in British military doctrine we talk about the nature of conflict versus the character of conflict the nature of conflict is enduring the character of conflict is ever changing um, but in real terms, what does that mean? Well, I think there has been um, near-constant conflicts throughout the millennia. Um, and the soldier's experience um, has not changed greatly, despite the advances in technology. Uh, at its most base level, it's still all about uh, closing with and defeating the enemy, uh, whether that be uh, through swords and spears, uh, at, um, at Thomopoli, whether it be bayonets on the Somme or whether it be through um, through uh, sniper fire in Helmand. Um, so there is endless conflict uh, and there will be an endless uh, fight for the narrative. One of the things that I wanted to mention from our earlier conversation was that in the information age, things happen so much more quickly. So whereas, whereas Randy was saying that with the, the Vietnam was ultimately sort of the, the narrative of that played out in the 80s and the, the narrative from the Great War is still playing out today. I think things are happening much more quickly in the information age. So um, we haven't let the dust settle uh, on the campaign in Helmand before our first sort of series of movies have come out, likewise with Afghanistan. So I think uh, we'll potentially reach a point where there's stuff going on, there is, there is uh, narratives being produced, uh, at the same time as the conflict is taking place. Yeah, and that, that makes it that 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 immediacy makes it really hard as a as a journalist, as a as a you know a independent historian uh, to even nail it down to you know if I'm talking to somebody who was in Iraq in 2004, that's a totally different thing than if I'm talking to a different person about Iraq in 2007. I mean that that the, the the, the circumstances on the ground are so changed within a short period of time, and, and maybe it has been ever thus, and I, I get that as well. Uh, maybe our awareness of the fact that the, the conditions on the ground as we try to, to capture that uh, in photography or literature or whatever, uh, you know, there's, there's this great, it's, it's almost a, a noir a comic book currently uh, uh, written by Tom King, and uh, and drawn by one of my favorite artists, Mitch Garrods, uh, and Tom King is a is a former uh, CIA uh, operative in Iraq, and it's 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 set in a very specific time in Iraq, and it couldn't be written about Iraq today, 
and it couldn't be written about Iraq uh, or the, the, the scenes that he's talking about, you know, certainly wouldn't be able to be set today uh, or in, in today's uh, Iraq. So, you know, that that makes me think of your, your example of Helmand. Uh, that makes me think of, you know, I, I continue to get news from the old neighborhood in, uh, in eastern Afghanistan for uh, my former unit. And, you know, where, where do you... Where do you try to capture the experience in order to uh, convey that? And I guess that's a different question than uh, how do you find the universal uh, parts uh, that are contained within that narrative? And like like you said, Barry, you know, the, the soldier's experience fundamentally has not changed. And perhaps in that we see the seeds of uh, the, the national experience at some basic level really hasn't changed. Yeah, um, the um, as as I say, the um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought rapidly, having a senior moment, obviously. Well, and if I may, uh, your your earlier example of uh, well, you were good to uh, to to mention, you know, just the the amount of of noise out there in the information society, uh, you know. It, poetry does not it, it is a very small and quiet voice, and it's hard to get noticed in this uh, you know daily avalanche of uh, tweets and memes and and noise from cable TV and 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 whatnot. Uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, the humorous soldiers uh, videos. Uh, you know, I do believe uh, I, I detect uh, some of the more actually. Some of the more memorable uh, parts of your memoir for me personally were the the times where you showed the uh, the humorous flair, the the soldiers' appreci- appreciation for uh, maybe dark humor. And for me, it's always been uh, you know one of my sherpitudes is humor is a combat multiplier. You know, it's a way to get a message through the noise. And uh, I wonder if you might be able to expand it a little bit about uh, your your use of humor, what the role is on the battlefield, and what the role is in your own work. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I fully agree that, that humor is a force multiplier. Um, however, I don't. Uh, I there are elements of that humor that I've been reluctant to include in my memoir, and uh, uh, I, there was one particular episode that I had to think long and hard about whether I should include it or whether I should censor it and, and not include it. I, I ended up including it, but um, it, it was it was very, it was a great deal of thought went into whether I should include that because ultimately there is, although soldiers are of the country that they serve, their experience and their training and the job that they do makes them subtly different from the citizens of the country that they serve. And um, I... <laughs> I did, I, I I did wonder whether the whether the the image and the reputation of the of the soldiers who I've served by writing about them, uh, whether that would be best cared for by including uh, some of the black humour. Um, but in the end, I felt it would be disingenuous to to exclude it, but maybe perhaps try and explain it. And and this is the same ballpark as as, as examples of black humour that I've seen. Um, elsewhere from documentaries I remember as a, as a young young boy watching a documentary about the First World War 
where the soldiers would shake the hand of a corpse uh, that was protruding from the trench wall before going over the top. And I can remember being quite upset by that as, as, as a young man. As, as a soldier, I now absolutely understand where those guys were coming from, and it's and it's a coping mechanism. If you if something if something makes you uh, if, if you're in fear of something, uh, if it's an ex- existential threat, one of them. If you can't fight it, well, what's the other thing you can do? You can make fun of it, and you can make it a big joke, uh, and it takes some of the tension away, um, and uh, and some of the fear as well. Well, and you immediately called to mind uh, one of my uh, late discoveries uh, this year. I had a uh, an editor friend of mine uh, recommend to me a TV movie about uh, the Wipers Times, uh, which is set in World War One when a bunch of uh, British soldiers who were uh, laying low in the trenches with uh, not much to do, apparently, or not enough to do, they found a uh, printing press and started uh, running their own underground, I guess there's a pun intended there, an underground newspaper, uh, sort of along the lines of uh, Punch Magazine or, or Mad Magazine or whatever. Very dark humor. Uh, I, I loved the movie and, and then you know immediately tried to consume everything I could find about The Wipers' Times. Uh, so, you know, it has, again, been ever thus that uh, soldiers find themselves in uh, dark situations and then create, uh, you know, opportunities for expression, uh, particularly through through humor. Whether or not uh, that humor can be a means to transmit to civilian audiences is, is an interesting uh, dilemma. Uh, like you said, not all soldier humor translates well, uh, particularly if it's just there to, uh, to to shock rather than to inform. Uh, but I do have to believe that, more generally, humor is a way that we can begin to uh, communicate certain universal truths or experiences. I mean, look at look at uh, satire uh, such as Catch-22 uh, in both movie and book. Uh, look at uh, The MASH, uh, the, the books, uh, the, uh, the movie, the, the, uh, the TV shows. I mean, all of those things were... Uh, able to explore portions of uh, the questions that we've asked here in this conversation, you know, why we go to war, how we go to war, what are the effects on different populations about, you know, of, of our engaging in war. Uh, that's all, that's all good stuff. And I, I would like actually to, to see more humor uh, in, in the world. Actually, I, I believe the, the people in UK have a more, uh, You've seen more service comedies on on TV, Dad's Army, and and all that uh, than than we have. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the, the great thing about that genre in the UK is that um, is that it packages the whole piece. So you've got Dad's Army, which was which was a comedy about the Home Guard. Uh, so these these elderly gentlemen who were who wore the king's uniform uh, and were prepared to repel the German hordes had they invaded. Um, and there's a, there's a whole load of, um, of, of, of that comedy works on a number of levels. Uh, uh, we also had it Ain't a Half Hot Mum, which was, um, which was a comedy about a, a combined services entertainment troupe uh, in the Far East Theatre of War, which was, uh, again, it ran for many, many years. And it's, and I think, I think it's probably through, 
through both of those TV series in the 70s growing up that I actually sort of, it sparked my first awareness of, of the Second World War as a, as, as a, as a cultural experience. Um, and, and well, I hate to admit that my, my own early understanding in second grade of World War II was based on Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and another great series. Um, um, and then and, and another, another comedy series, uh, which I think does warrant a mention here, is, is Blackadder, which I, I gather you, you guys have had in the States as well. And, and again, it, it's... Uh, Although it contributes to the lions led by donkeys narrative, um, I think it, there is still a huge amount that can be that could be derived if, from it if 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 somebody had no idea of um, of what the, the First World War was about, it would at least give them some kind of an inkling. Um, and not to mention not to mention that there's some uh, there's some great war poetry in there, courtesy of Baldrick. Uh, the poem entitled <laughs> "The German Guns," um, which consists of "boom, boom, boom, boom" repeatedly. So, uh, something uh, for everybody. I, uh, I realized that uh, I would be remiss uh, not to. I, I don't believe it's a series anymore. Uh, I think it got through t- at least two seasons, maybe three. But uh, BBC Three's "Bluestone 42" or "Bluestone 42" yes. is a fantastic. I think. Uh, uh, depiction of what soldierly life, you know, it's lighthearted, but what soldierly life was, uh, at least in my experience, in a in a small unit. Uh, uh, but what I also observed downrange when I uh, embedded with uh, with uh, soldiers downrange. So, uh, Bluestone Four Two, uh, try to find it. Uh, it's uh, hard to come by, uh, but uh, you might be able to find snippets on the uh, the internet. Yeah, I confess I haven't actually seen Bluestone 4 2. Um, and I can't really give a, an honest reason as to why I haven't seen it. However, um, I, what, what, what I could say is that I, I was aware of it, but never watched it. And, and I think from a personal perspective, I wasn't quite ready to see um, a comedy uh, featured about, featuring about a conflict that I'd been involved in. Um, so, but I think as time goes on, I think I'll probably have to dig it out and, and watch it. Well, and, and that goes back to our earlier point about uh, being able to see things from other people's perspectives. Perhaps I responded uh, so well to Bluestone 4-2 because it's not about my army. And there was an earlier attempt uh, at a uh, comedy here in the States uh, called Enlisted. And, and granted, it, it, the pilot made some fundamental errors uh, in terms of uh, uniform and haircuts and that sort of thing. So uh, anybody who was already a member of the service or a veteran reacted emotionally to those types of things versus uh, reacting positively to maybe what they were trying to do with humor. Uh, had it stuck around, enlisted might have been uh, really almost a mash-like experience for, for exploring harder topics like PTSD and uh, you know moral injury and, and and those you know really difficult to get people to talk about topics. Uh, it, you know it would have been interesting to watch. But again, uh, both both of those uh, series, if uh, people want to uh, check it out, I think that I, I would heartily recommend it to to people on both sides of the water. I would also uh, 
from our perspective, from the U.S. perspective, Generation Kill, which is HBO, I want to say, uh, which was yeah. three seasons. Uh, I thought they did a really great job with that. I didn't know what the reception was like in certain crowds, but uh, at least from a quality perspective. Um, and it also didn't, it obviously didn't cover the, the long breadth of the war. It was just uh, leading up to major conflict yeah it was early early iraq and it was uh it was marine so again that's you know not my army so i have an immediate you know maybe i'm able to more appreciate it by looking past uh, whatever uh uh you know flaws or technical errors there there might have been in that although some of my buddies think that it's it's pretty on on point and of course it involves a uh, a character with a, a, a position of privileged observation it involves a uh, a writer uh, for the Rolling Stone, which I, you know, again, it's it's interesting when we do look at war narratives, looking for okay, who is the point of view, uh, who is bringing that point of view, and it often helps to have a writer like, or you know, some some other type of soldier or civilian uh, doing the telling, because uh, you know, soldiers are too busy doing the fighting. Uh, with that in mind, did you see and or, if so, think it was effective, uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot? I think that was the recent uh, conflict narrative one, or journalist one. Uh, I, I, I personally uh, loved that movie. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of things technically wrong, and you know, you can, you can always uh, sharpshoot uh, what equipment is on screen, or you know, that wouldn't have happened in ex exactly that, that way. Uh, I did have to be very careful to communicate to my spouse that uh, uh, that was depicting not necessarily that was an independent journalist uh, on the ground or a freelancer. Uh, what do they call it? A, a, a unilateral on the ground. She didn't have. Uh, it wasn't all embedded experience. So uh, my life when I embedded was uh, certainly not the frat party that was. Uh, that character's experience, uh, you know, when she went back to her apartment, you know, I was with the soldiers uh, 24 seven and was uh, grateful for it. Uh, but yes, again, humor bringing, uh, I, I can put whiskey tango foxtrot in front of my spouse and say, this is showing something of my experience. Maybe not all of it. Uh, you know, definitely not all of it. Uh, but it's using humor to kind of as the sugar coating, uh, where she would not sit down and want to sit down and watch a generation kill. You know, she would not want to sit down and, and read, uh, you know, a, a serious exploration of war, but she might be tricked into, you know, reading something uh, of mine that's, you know, short and poetic. Um, and then on a final note, uh, I'll start with you, Randy. Um is there anything you're reading and or writing right now that's uh, making you particularly excited? Well, I, uh, I'm excited on two fronts. On the journalistic front, I'm uh, through my, my second pass on a manuscript that collects the, uh, the nonfiction uh, journalism of uh, the unit with which I embedded. So that's uh, got me staying up late at night. Uh, in, the, in the times where I've actually uh, got to... Uh, read things for pleasure. Uh, I'm currently reading a new collection of modern war poetry from a spouse's perspective called Uniform by Lisa Stice. Last name is spelled S-T-I-C-E. 
And for me, this connects to a longer tradition of poetry from the home front uh, that goes back to, in fact, I'm, I'm also about to review a book by Vivian Newman called uh, Tumult and Tears, the story of the Great War through the eyes and lives of its women's, women poets. So uh, much like uh, Barry was talking earlier about how uh, our perception of the Great War has kind of been frozen and crystallized in the experiences of uh, upper-class uh, commissioned officers from World War One. I'm hoping that this, uh, this book uh, co- further complicates and enriches my understanding of the World War I experience, particularly in uh, the form of women war workers and spouses and whatnot. What about you, Barry? Um, I've got a, a number of things that are on my to-read list. Um, top of the list, uh, I, I echo Randy's view, uh, Viv- Vivian's uh, book. She's got another book as well, Nursing Through Shot and Shell, which is a, a history of, uh, of, of female nurses uh, during the Great War. Both of her book, both of those books by Vivian are on my to-read list. Uh, I'm still working my way through uh, Battle-Worn Memoirs of a Combat Medic by Chantal Taylor. And another one that's hit my radar that I really want to get hold of is um, a book called Dadland by a lady called Keggy Kuru. And this is, this is her, all about her relationship with her father, who was a special operations executive um, guy during the Second World War, parachuted into France, into occupied France with the Jed Brutines uh, ahead of um, ahead of the um, of the invasion. Uh, so, and, and it's all about her relationship with her father and his experiences of the war as told to her by him. So, a, a few great things to uh, to look forward to. Uh, on a writing front, I'm um, I'm looking forward to uh, I'm I'm working on. Uh, bringing together some of my other poetry uh, and that's, that doesn't get featured in, in on Afghanistan's planes and some shorter pieces from other periods in my career. So I'm trying to tie those together into, uh, into a coherent narrative uh, as a follow-up to the book uh, to, to our, on Afghanistan's planes. Uh, and my other big news is there is the... Um, the uh, Never Such Innocence poetry competition, uh, which I've been, uh, I'm very proud to have been invited to be a judge for. Um, and this was how I was got into contact with, or was contacted by Vivian um, about this. Um, so, um, so this is a poetry competition that commemorates the centenary of the First World War, and it's open to children uh, aged between nine and sixteen in Commonwealth countries. Uh, so. Britain and, and, and former empire countries. Um, and so that kicks off in September. And I think the judging's due to start early next year. And, and there's, and the, the winners are announced around about March, April, uh, next year. So, um, I'm really excited about that, um, because centenary of, um, of, of First World War, we've had great events this year, centenary of the Somme for, for the British, um, and for the, um, and some other landmark events for the, the, the Anzacs. And also next year, obviously, 
uh, arguably one of the more bloody, most bloody war years of the First World War, the, the centenary of Passchendaele. So I'm hoping that there's a whole load of stuff that, that kids will be able to suck into their poetry. Uh, to that the, the, the Americans will get there, Barry. We, we're, our centennials are next year. <laughs> so just, just wait. We're coming. And I also have to, I do have to clarify, uh, that's, that's former, uh, former members of the British Empire, but not the colonies, correct? It's the Commonwealth countries, so... Um, yeah. so, so the United States is a former colony. Uh, unfortunately, we are not able to participate. Well, you might have been if, you, if you'd seceded peacefully uh, in, the, in the 20th century. You may have been, but uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, I do applaud. I I'm, I'm, uh, applaud your efforts, uh, particularly with youth, to use poetry as a uh, means by which to explore... Uh, harder to get at uh, pieces of history and truth. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Pen and the Sword with Randy Brown and Barry Alexander. You can find Randy and Barry on Twitter at Fob Haiku and Barry and Alexander, respectively. As always, if you have any questions or comments on the show, feel free to send us a message via militarywritersguild.org. I do personally check them and try to respond as many as possible. Also, hopefully if you're hearing this, you've already subscribed to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, ratings on iTunes are what allow these conversations to reach more ears past our own networks. So if you enjoyed this conversation or past ones, it'd be amazing if you could add a rating. As always, our music was brought to you by Dexter Britton, who you can find online at dexterbritton.co.uk. Until next time, right on.